The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. Uh, good to be with you on this uh, Friday morning. It's great to have so many guests here. I wonder if those of you who are here for Experience Cairn Day, just slip up your hand. We won't ask you to stand. Just slip up your hand so we can welcome you. Thank you for being here today. Excited to have you here and excited for your day and, and praying for you as well. It's uh, good to be uh, in such a full house this morning in chapel, and I'm eager to proceed with the series which I introduced last week. I do want to thank all of you uh, students who participated in homecoming last week as well. You blessed the university community and the alumni uh, with your presence and uh, the great events that they were able to take part in. Uh, athletically and otherwise, that you helped with. So thank you for that. Thank you for being a blessing to those who have gone before you. I want to continue today with this second installment in this year's series, which I've entitled, What in the World Are We Doing? What in the World Are We Doing? A biblical perspective on our roles, relationships, and responsibilities. And if you remember last time, I want to address some specific things related to our life in this world. We have roles. We have relationships. We have responsibilities. We have things like marriage and family. We have issues related to work and money. We have issues related to our learning and life of the mind. We have issues related to citizenship, what it means to be good neighbors, what it means to be responsible stewards of all that's been entrusted to us in this world and to be the Lord's servants and ambassadors here. And so this year, I want to focus on these things. What in the world are we doing? And challenge us to think biblically about those roles and those relationships and those responsibilities that the Bible does speak to that we should have informed by our understanding of Scripture rather than the thinking of the world around us. And last time we unpacked this idea as we set up that series, the importance of living an intentional and integrated Christian life. I shared with you the charge that we read at commencement each time that that's really what we want from you. We want you to live out the mission of this institution and to live your Christian life with purpose and for a purpose, but also that you would be an integrated man or an integrated woman who is thinking biblically about the issues of your life and the issues of this world. And so we talked about last time from Ephesians 5, the importance of being committed to living a fruitful life, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to walk not as unwise but as wise, and to want to live a life that is pleasing to him. And that's not just in terms of your, your, the things that you hold to be true theologically, the things that you give mental assent to, but that those things have implications for the way you think and live, that the mark of the gospel is that it would change the way you live Live out your life in this world. And that's what Paul was writing to these Ephesians. He was basically outlining the great truths and doctrines of the Christian faith, but then ends by calling to, a, to their attention the importance of those things shaping the way they lived wives and husbands, children and parents, children and parents, bondservants and overseers. The idea that these gospel truths, these eternal truths that we hold so dearly should impact the way we think and live in very practical ways. The conclusion of Ephesians 5 that talks about those earthly relationships, that's not just an add-on or a one-off. It's built upon the entire argument of the letter to those Christians that their lives were to be lived differently. And my argument last time in setting up the series is we live in a day that is actually 
the, the culture around us is actually driving this idea that you are the center of your universe, that you get to decide what matters and what doesn't, that you get to decide what is true and what isn't, that you get to decide how your life should be lived. But for the Christian, we submit, as our verse for the year calls us, we submit to the Lord, we yield our wills to his, we take up our cross and we follow him. And that should have impact on the way we live out our life in this world, the roles that we will have, as I mentioned last time. Some of you are already there, and some of you will get there shortly. You will be husbands, and you will be wives. You will be mothers, and you will be fathers. You're already sons and daughters. You will work to start businesses. You'll work within ministries and organizations. You will serve the Lord in an increasingly challenging and an increasingly secularized context. So you have to be sharp about it. And you have to be thinking about the ways in which that world is influencing your thinking about these very practical things. The scripture is full of exhortations to guard your minds and hearts, to want to be mature in your understanding, to think rightly about your life in this world. And that is so often countercultural. And as we unpack this year, these various roles and relationships and responsibilities, I hope not just to tell you what I think the Bible says, but to call to your attention things that I think you need to be aware of in terms of the way the sensibilities of the world are affecting the sensibilities of Christians and to be responsible about that, to make decisions, to live and to think intentionally. And so today, as I mentioned last week, I want to take up the issue of marriage and family. Now I have not enough time to exhaust this subject. And so I would call this Marriage and Family One. I envision at least two installments on this topic, maybe three if we get distracted by how to deal with dating. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) We will talk about all these things, what it means, not just to think about marriage and family, but how you will live out the implications of what the Bible teaches us about marriage and family, both in understanding rightly what marriage is and the importance of family, but also how you will approach it and how you actually get to it and then what you're supposed to do once you're there. Recognizing, of course, that not everybody in this room will be married. God does grant to some singleness and celibacy. But we see from the very beginning that God had a design for the relationships between men and women, and we should be thinking biblically about that. So I want to talk about that issue of marriage and family in several installments before we move on to other issues. And it's fitting that we begin this installment on marriage and family by going back to the creation narrative, as Dean Swift read for us. You know, the idea of creation is the first Essential element of a Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption. We think about all of life and all of human experience from that understanding that that God created all things, that he sustains all things, that he did so perfectly for his own purposes and his own glory, and that all of it, all of it is implicated by sin in the fall. All of it is broken. All of it, all of it. But there is, thankfully, redemption in and through Jesus Christ for all of it. And in the end, all will be made new. 
That's the way we are to think as Christians about everything, not just about your, your, the state of your soul, but about everything in this world, creation, others, other human beings, the people you have relationships with, the, 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 the society in which we find ourselves, the institutions of society. We're to think in terms of creation, fall, redemption. And so when we think about marriage and family, we should be thinking that way from that perspective. What is the Christian view why do we value marriage so much? And I think it's important to understand we don't value marriage so much because the secular alternatives are so repulsive to us. We don't value marriage as Christians because we're traditionalists or because we're conservative or because we think about the world in old ways. No, no, we value marriage because God set it up at the very beginning according to his perfect design. It isn't that we hold to a view of marriage that, 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 is, that is so important simply because we want to be countercultural in a world that's pulling at that institution. We hold to it because it's there at the very beginning. The passage that was read for us, that the Christian view of marriage and family is rooted in creation because prior to sin in the fall, this is interesting, <laughs> marriage, despite what some People may be saying to you, marriage is not a penalty. It's not punishment. It's not meant to burden you. It was instituted prior to sin in the fall. Sin in the fall have created problems with marriage. I was talking to someone recently who said, well, you know, your traditional values and your traditional view of these human institutions such as marriage and family, they're the problem. And I'm actually seeing Christians being pulled down that path. Listen, marriage isn't the problem. The problem with marriages isn't marriage. The problem is humanity because of sin in the fall. Marriage is instituted prior to that in the garden when God is creating all things. He, he then purposes to make humankind distinct from all the rest of creation. Humankind is the only element of creation that bears the image and likeness of God. It shows us his intimate involvement in humanity and, and the, the uniqueness of humankind. Animals are great. They're not human. My dog thinks he's a human, but he is not a human. He doesn't write poetry. He doesn't reflect on his puppyhood. He doesn't plan for the future. He's a dog. You and I are humans made in the image and likeness of God. And God says, he looked out and said, let us, right? The triune God, let us make in our image and after our likeness, let us make humankind and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Parentheses here for a minute. Authority is not the problem in society or in this world. Sin in the fall is. Adam and Eve are given dominion over the earth before the fall. We have to be ready to answer the questions. What ails us is sin and the fall. Not these things, not marriage, not authority, not children, not family. God said at the very beginning, let us make humankind in our image and let them rule and have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. God said it. Male and female, he created them. The end. 
It's God's perfect design that he created humankind in his image and likeness and then made them male and female. That's God's perfect design, male and female. Then God blessed them and said to them, go and satisfy your basest desires and do whatever you like. That's not what he says. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. Live the life I have intended for you. Be together and be fruitful and multiply. In essence, then, at the very beginning, before God rests and looks out and says, everything that he made was very good. He makes humankind in his image and likeness, and he makes male and female, and he gives them dominion over this world. And in chapter two, we read more where God actually, we have an expansion on this, that God actually says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed everything. And out, but, but when he looked at what was there, he said, there's something missing. For Adam, there was not found anything suitable. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man and said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage and family is not a Western civilization contravation. It is biblical. We should hold to it with all the dearness we can because this is what God intended from the very beginning. He created us for one another and he expects us to enjoy that relationship because he wants it to be very good in his sight because that's how he made it, very good in his sight. If you just think for a minute about this, it's easy to say, well, what's the big deal? Men and women get together and they get married and they procreate and they have children. What's the big deal? Well, God thought it was a big deal because it's here in Genesis twice and it's actually something that he values a great deal, apparently. There's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. And if you see any photos of G.K. Chesterton, I think it's safe to say he's no Don Juan. But he does say this, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. Well, why would Chesterton say that? Because this is the basic building block of all that is in God's eyes, marriage and family. While there are exceptions to that, there are those who do not marry, there are those who do not have children, we should not undermine the institution of marriage and family because the world says it's an outdated, antiquated, patriarchal idea. It's there in creation for our good and the good of the world, for God's glory. So we should be thinking about it from that perspective. 
What does the Bible say marriage is and how should it be approached? Why do we do it? Well, it's all very clear in the scripture. The problem is that we actually are affected by the thinking of the world around us. Somehow that marriage is something you do that makes you happy or satisfies your indulgences or makes you the center of the universe. Yet the picture of marriage outlined in scriptures is that, is that husbands and wives are given to one another to give up themselves for the other. In fact, the pictures in the New Testament that are drawn of marriage and the comparison to Christ is that the husband should love the wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. A man doesn't get married to satisfy his needs, to make himself feel more important, to enjoy a conquest or to somehow check a box. He gets married to give himself to a woman as her head, as her leader, it's a beautiful thing. It should, not, it should not be torn at by those of us in the family of God. So we should think about this. Now, marriage often comes under. There are trends that affect it. You know, I think it's interesting. I talk to people about social and cultural and historical issues and this idea somehow that marriage is sort of a, uh, uh, an imposition of Western civilization. Somehow it's it's just an imposition on men and women to keep them under control. That's not really what the Bible says. There are cultural things about marriage. Some of you come from parts of the world where there are dowries or marriages are arranged. Here we have gift registries that tell you what to buy and how much to spend. We've created in our culture approaches to weddings that we conflate with marriage. You get to be a prince and a princess for one day out of the year, and the whole world revolves around you. That's a cultural thing, but the construct and the concept of a man and a woman being united as one, that's not a cultural thing. That's a creational issue, and that's why it carries such weight. But there have always been trends. I was reminded recently of some sitcoms when I was a kid on television. Television, it's that old thing that precedes streaming, for those of you that don't know. And so on certain nights of the week, there would be television shows on, and I can tell you that during the 70s, there was a recurring theme of characters stating this, I am not going to get married or have children. I won't bring them into this world. Look at the world. Vietnam, economic issues, all kinds of... Why would we bring children into this world? Well, one... God said to, and two, good families raising good kids, that has to have a beneficial impact in a world that is hurting, is broken, is disjointed, is confused, is lost. To create in society the pictures of the gospel, if, if Paul refers to the relationship between Jesus and the church as bride and bridegroom, then it has to benefit the world that we still value the human institution of brides and bridegrooms being united in marriage. We need those reminders around us all the time. But that trend always happens. People delay marriage. They, they think that marriage isn't worth it. I mean, presently speaking, there's a couple of interesting things going on. In 2021, we saw that the national age, the median for marriage was about 30.2 for men, 28.1 for women, overall about 29.2. 
Now, I think it's a little bit more than that. It's 32 for men and 30 and a half for women. But in 2021, when that survey came out saying that it was 30.2 for men and 28.1 for women, here's the stat that will blow you away. It's a 32% increase in age over the last 48 years. People are delaying longer and longer. Some of you that follow me on Instagram know that this week, my wife and I celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary. And I know that I know that a number of you were, saw that and thought, well, good grief, Dr. Williams, how is that possible? You don't look a day over 39. But, right, we were definitely younger when we were married. The trend today is to wait. And this isn't a message on whether you should wait or whether you should not, but it is interesting to think about why we might be waiting. One of the things that I uncovered in looking at this is an interesting one. of those survey were delaying marriage because they felt it was too expensive to get married in the current economy. Too expensive to get married. It might be too expensive to be wed in the ceremonies that take place around us. I don't understand 73% saying it's too expensive to get married, especially when the same survey showed that 54% of the respondents still moved in with their partners because of economic reasons. So if 73% say, I can't afford to get married, but we can't afford to be single, let's just move in, something else is going on. This isn't about the money. So what is it that's going on around us, and is it affecting you as a Christian with regard to the way you're thinking about marriage and family? Marriage, lined out as it is in Scripture, is something that God designed according to his good purposes and perfect will, for his glory and for our benefit, and for the benefit of the world, because all of it will rest upon Adam and Eve's being fruitful and multiplying. Now, it is true that as a result of sin in the fall, we have very early on in the Bible that brother kills brother. But that's not because Adam and Eve had children. That's because they disobeyed God, because sin entered the world. And so we should hold dear and protect the ideas that we have about marriage and family because it's right and good and true to do so, which is what we discussed last week in Ephesians 5, to want what is right and good and true. This is right and good and true. But I'm here to tell you, not just as your president and a leader of this ministry, but as someone who has spent a long time in the social sciences, that there is a social and cultural agenda to tear down the institution of marriage and family. And you as Christians cannot go blindly down that path. You must hold, because it's God's design. It's not a human contravation. So when I think about this, I, I think about this reality. Well, look at the state of the world. Is it worth pursuing this? You know, I find it very fascinating and a little bit confront- confrontive that you have this creation account, God establishing marriage and family in such a powerful and sacred way, and you have the New Testament referring to our responsibilities to one another as husbands and wives, as children and parents. But it's very interesting to me in the book of Jeremiah, as God's people are being sent off into exile, that the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem in Jeremiah 29, to Babylon, Babylon, God's people being sent 
into exile in Babylon. God tells the prophet to say to these exiles, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Friends, brothers and sisters, if that's God's command to his chosen people being sent into exile in a pagan land, we cannot do otherwise as his servants in this world. We must continue to uphold this sacred institution of marriage and family. And he says, seek the welfare of the city in which you live, where I have sent you to into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare is yours. These two ideas are not separate from one another. To marry and to reproduce is actually seeking the welfare of that place. And it is for your welfare as well. These are not independent ideas. It's all tied together as the children of Israel find themselves sent into exile. And that should speak to us in powerful ways. I don't know where each of you are. I do know this in a room this size. There's a lot going on. Some of you are actually been holding out since you were two years old, dreaming about marriage, dreaming about your wedding day. Not just the women. I've talked to some of you guys. As though marriage will fix everything that's wrong with you and everything that's empty and everything that's broken. Wrong. Only Jesus can make you whole. Only Jesus can make you whole. But there are some of you who are saying this to yourselves. I had a terrible example of marriage and family. I didn't have both parents who held up marriage in this view. I don't have good examples in my life. I don't see the benefit of it because I didn't see it. Listen, here's the thing. The lie of the world is not that marriage will be perfect because it, it isn't, because we're sinful human beings who are united as one. We have to navigate all of that. Here's the lie in that that you start building what you believe to be true about marriage based on human circumstance and experience. You cannot do that. You cannot afford to do that. Whether you had good examples or bad examples, God in creation set this up for your betterment and for the betterment of the world. And you should view it that way. You should see it as a blessing and fight everything that is in you to say, it cannot be good because I had no examples in my life to show me that it was good. My parents were married long before they came to faith. And our home was anything but peaceful, anything but an ideal Christian family and marriage. And after my parents came to faith when I was a teenager, everything changed, but it wasn't made perfect. What changed is their commitment to one another because now they were servants of the Lord and their view of marriage began to change. So all the things and the baggage and the stuff that they brought with them, they held on to this idea. God intended this for our good and for his glory. That's one issue. You're terrified. You don't like it. You think that it's not worthwhile because you didn't have good examples. You can't build your truth on your own experiences. You have to come back to Scripture. What is true? Because the truth is those examples and those experiences that you have are not the product of marriage. They are the product of sin in the fall. And if you think about that rightly, you will find your way through that predicament, like most predicaments in this world. Think rightly about it. Understand creation, fall, redemption, and all that is for us in and through Jesus Christ. Some of you are actually thinking about the financial side of things. 
I think that that is something that you should realize is that you have no control over the economy. You could wait till you have all the money in the world to buy a home and to buy two cars the day after you're married. None of us got to do that. My grandparents certainly didn't do that. You don't really get to have it all at the beginning. There's nothing more beautiful than a man and a woman united in marriage, building a life together by God's grace and hard work. Don't wait for everything to be perfect. That's like waiting for your sin to disappear before you come to the cross. It's not possible. It's not possible. Some of you believe that this idea, you believe the thinking of the world, that this idea is outdated, that it's unnecessary. And I would say to you, the words the apostle Paul heard on the Damascus road, why do you kick against the goads? God did this according to his perfect will for his glory and your benefit. Love what he has designed. He designed us in his image and likeness. He made us that way. He gave us for one another. He made us male and female. He makes no mistakes. Institution of marriage was not a mistake. It was according to God's design. The exceptions to it are not for selfish reasons. They're for extenuating reasons. Not for selfish reasons. Some of you are nervous about marriage because you don't feel like you're grown up, grown up enough for it. I got married very young. I don't have a single regret. And if I thought that I was grown up when I was married, it was wrong to think so. But the reality is, entering into this sacred bond is a responsibility that you have to take seriously if you're going to carry it out in the way that pleases the Lord and you find yourself maturing. One of the things I think that's terrifying is that the world is telling you to delay adulthood for as long as possible. But the Bible calls us to maturity. Don't be avoiding marriage simply because you want to be a child for the rest of your life because that's not the way of the Lord. Remember what we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 13? When I was a child, thought as a child, acted as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. This is what I would say to you. It's time to grow up. Grow up in every aspect of your life. And we'll talk about the rest of this in future installments. But beware the agenda of the world around you to tear at this institution of marriage in the family not just by making fun of it and ridiculing it, but it tearing, by tearing at the way in which you will decide its worth and value. Its worth and value is not set by the culture. It is set by the very word of God because it is embedded in creation. Think now long and hard about whether you want it or not and why. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, the passage that we looked at last week, Paul concludes a long stretch of theological teaching, what it means to walk worthy, and then drives the message of the book home by saying it should change the way you think and live out with regard to these relationships on earth. And marriage is one of them. Do not go down the path of thinking like a secular world about a sacred institution. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would use it to accomplish your work in us. Father, we thank you for 
the creation narrative. We thank you for the encouragement that it provides us, that you are the maker and sustainer of all things. We thank you for the honesty that it gives us about sin and the fall and its reach into every dimension of human life and experience. And we pray for the grace to look to the redemptive power of Jesus Christ to make things new and right. Father, we pray that we might not be tempted to think wrongly about the institutions of marriage and family, but rather give us the grace to hold fast to your word and what it tells us about the goodness and the rightness and the truthfulness of these things. And make us to care for one another as image bearers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great weekend.